John 7, 43, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And the word division is schisma. Schisma, it's where we get our word schism. It's a schism that has now occurred, a, a tear, a dissension. And this is a recurring theme in John's gospel. In fact, further on, as we go forward from here, Literally from the feeding of the 5,000 plus back in chapter 6. Six months have gone by. You may remember from Sunday. Now we're in chapter 7. Now Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has gone up to Jerusalem. And from here on out, schisms, divisions, contentions. But others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division, a schisma, a schism among them. John chapter 10, verse 19, a division, same word again, a schism occurred again among the Jews because of Jesus' words, because of his words, because of his presence. Every follower of Jesus needs to understand the effect of his first coming, the effect of it, not the reason, but the response and we've talked about this a bit before. Jesus came to bring peace on earth, to offer peace to all men, all women, all mankind. But the effect of his coming was not peace in schisms and divisions. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's once her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus goes further. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Think about that in your families. Do you have a family member, a spouse, a child that you would put above ahead of Jesus? He says, not okay. If you're going to follow me, I am first. Now, consequently, when we put Jesus first in our marriages and in our families and in our relationships, we love the other person better. So he says, love me first and it will impact everything. He goes on and says, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Schismas will happen. Expect them, understand that's part of the deal. Now, we talked about this a bit last week. In fact, it's kind of been a recurring theme, but not because I'm all into talking about family dysfunction. It's just what's going on right now in the ministry, in the life of Jesus that does have immediate import to our lives as well. And what we talked about last week, and I want to remind you of, is that rejection is rarely passive. If someone's going to reject you because of Jesus, it's rarely going to be sweet and, and gentle because you don't reject passively. You reject seriously and scornfully and rejection wasn't passive for Jesus. If we're going to take up our crosses and follow him, then we're following him down that same road and we will experience that same Rejection, no wonder he says, he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And that's not to make us paranoid victims in the world. It is to make us prepared victors. And we are not cowed by the rejection of people. We don't stop loving them either. 
but we accept and we expect that this is what's going to happen. Jesus knew rejection well. If you follow Jesus, you will know it too. Verse 19 of John chapter 7, Jesus was speaking to them and he said, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Then he's dialing in to the, to the commandment, thou shalt not murder. And you're not keeping the law. Well, they hadn't killed him yet. Yeah, but they were planning to and he knew it. And then the crowd answered and said, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. It's kind of funny to me that moments later, verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is not this the man whom they are seeking to kill? Wait a minute, didn't you guys just say he had a demon because he said people were going to kill him? And now they're acknowledging that there are people who are going to kill him? Come on, which one is it? Schism. Could say schizophrenia, but schism is the deal here. There were those who were dialed in and there were those who were naive and there's the divide. People who don't really know, not really paying attention, not very aware of what's going on politically and religiously in Jerusalem at the time. But there were those who knew, those who heard the side conversations in the street, those who were, who were aware of what their leaders were planning. Some knew that the leaders had a hit out on Jesus, that they wanted him dead. And again, others were clueless. But among those who knew, first, they debate this issue, and then they dismiss the messianic rumors. Watch this, verse 26. Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? As the people discuss this, and they're recognizing something, do they think perhaps he is the Christ? because they're not acting on this. Normally the things he's saying would be considered heresy, but when you match what he's saying with his character and his nature and his miracles, how can you not believe? But do they believe? Or do they not believe? And so they're all speculating this. It's a good question. Why weren't the leaders at least challenging Jesus, if not arresting him? Now, if you know the story, you know they will, especially in the last week of his life. And, and they'll take little pot shots up until then, but then they pull out the stops to try and undermine Jesus and catch him. But they're not right now. Here at Sukkot, in, that really start to emerge in this chapter. Ironic things that, that John will share, and usually when he says something ironic, he doesn't explain it. He just kind of lets it hang there. And he knows his readers are going to pick up on it. And this is one of them. That back in verse 13, if you look up there, it says, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Here's the irony that John doesn't mention, but it's hanging here. The Jewish leaders are afraid of the crowds. The crowds won't talk openly because they fear their leaders, but the leaders fear what the crowds will do if they go after Jesus. So everybody's afraid here. Everybody's confused. Schisms. Schisms. But then the crowd dismisses this messianic possibility. And here's why, verse 27. However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ, the Messiah may come, no one knows where he is from. And right there, you might want to mark this in your Bibles. This is the first of three different trends. <laughs> first century prophetic trends among the Jewish people in Jerusalem, in Israel, that caused them to dismiss Messiah. Three things that they thought. Now, these, these three things are all biblically based, but they're confused or they're contradictory. 
with the other things that are biblically based. So they're really not thinking them through, but I want you to note this, pay close attention to these. The first popular prophetic idea is, number one, sudden revelation with no speculation. Sudden revelation without speculation. Again, verse 27, we know where this man is from, Jesus. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. And they spend this mystery. And what they're saying is, when the Christ comes, according to our prophetic understanding of the Scriptures, there's no room for schisms over speculation. If we understand our Scriptures correctly, and they didn't, but if we do, there will be no maybe he is or maybe he isn't as was going on about Jesus right now. No debates. He's just going to show up. In fact, you could put it this way. He'd show and they'd know, period. And that was their expectation. It was a messianic expectation. Where'd they get it? Two places in the Hebrew Scriptures that they drew this from. First of all, Isaiah 53, verse 8, which says, Who shall declare his generation? Who shall declare his generation? Who's going to know? And what's ironic about Isaiah 53, verse 8, who shall declare his generation is followed by something they left off that would have given them understanding down the road. For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. But they just picked out this one part. They're proof texting. Don't do that. Don't pull out half a verse or a single verse and go, see, there's my theology. You want to see what the word, the whole... Here's the other one, and it's even more succinct. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which reads, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. He's just going to pop and be there. And we're all going to know. And we're all going to be ready. It's just going to happen Again, they miss the John the Baptist part of this. I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And John had. But then Malachi prophesied and the Lord who you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Popular prophetic notions rather than sound biblical truth. The word suddenly in the Hebrew, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, the word suddenly, he will suddenly come into his temple is pitom, and it also translates surprisingly. So it's not necessarily an instantaneous thing as much as a surprising thing. They misinterpreted that verse to believe that Messiah was going to suddenly just pop up in the temple. He's just going to, whoop, he's there. Whoa, Messiah! And we're all going to fall down and worship him, and then he's going to conquer Rome, and we will march to victory. And this was the mentality that was 400 years of prophecy updates Prophetic teachings and the people getting kind of a trendy view of different verses that they began to lock in and say, this is what Messiah must be. Hey, the Bible will tell us what Messiah must be. The whole word. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans, clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel his goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Clearly a messianic verse. Clearly the one who's going to come to the earth and he's going to come through Bethlehem. He's not going to pop in the temple. He's going to come to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's in the mix. You've got to add that in. 
Right now, that's a contradiction to what they were thinking in terms of the prophetic first century trend. Trending now. He's just going to show up. Well, they're going to confuse the Bethlehem thing too. You'll see in a moment. But let me ask you this. My, the Lord will come suddenly into the temple or surprisingly into the temple. Does that prophetically fit the first coming of Jesus? Wasn't 12-year-old Jesus a total surprise to the leaders and teachers and scribes in the temple that day? They were shocked. In fact, Luke 2.46 says, after three days they found Jesus in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers. Now, stop and think about that. Hold on for a second. Get the picture. I've heard that verse so many times, and even today I realize this. I've heard the verse so many times when I think of the temple in Jerusalem, I always thought of a, a little tiny little thing, tiny little building, you know, dirty streets, and, and Jesus was there in the tiny little building. No, no, this was the temple complex. This was massive. The complex that at that time was under construction by Herod was throughout Jesus' ministry, but it was huge and gaping, and the courtyards, this was a massive place, and Jesus went there, 12-year-old boy and found his way among the teachers and the scribes. And as he asked questions and as he shared thoughts, they were so amazed. They all are gathered around him. Three days long, he's at the temple. And all who heard him, Luke 2, 47, were amazed at his understanding at his, and his answers. And I would say he came surprisingly into the temple that day. And after 30 years of being a relative nobody in Nazareth, his ministry surprised everyone suddenly with, with a burst of power and teaching that nobody saw coming. And on top of that, he did come suddenly into the temple, surprisingly into the temple, cleaning house at the start of his ministry, John chapter 2, and at the conclusion of his ministry, according to the Synoptic Gospels. So yes, yes, the prophecy absolutely fits Jesus. And it reminds me that prophecy is always easier to interpret once it's been fulfilled. I can tell I can give interpretations for all of the prophecies of his first coming. We can do that tonight. You want a prophecy update? Let's start back in the first century because I know exactly what happened and we know exactly how they were fulfilled. Listen. Popular notions of prophecy. Now, I, I'm saying this from a position of someone who over 18 years we have done many prophecy updates, right? Because I like that buzz. And I do too. So it's not that I don't believe in Bible prophecy or in teaching Bible prophecy. Hey, we've been through Revelation twice and we're going to do it again before we get to the end of the Bible. Don't worry, I'm not going to wait that long. I love prophecy. I love Bible prophecy, and the thing about Bible prophecy is if you're going to teach the Bible, you have to teach prophecy because it's roughly a third of the scriptures. But popular notions of Bible prophecy can be very potent and can be very dangerous if they're not sound biblical teaching. And I say this to you all to say whether it's me or anyone else, when you're listening to prophecy teachers Pastors getting into prophecy updates and sharing, you better be testing everything against the whole counsel of the Word of God and not just making assumptions. Prophecynewswatch.com sends out emails. Many of you probably get Prophecy Newswatch. A lot of them are very good, very interesting, the way they tie things into what's happening in current events. Be careful. They're not always right. By the way, neither am I. 
We look at things, but the Bible's very clear. Now we see through a mirror darkly, then face to face. Because then all prophecy will have been fulfilled. All prophecy will cease because it's be, it'll be unnecessary. And we'll look back and go, oh, I see. He did mean it literally. And we'll get it. I got to take a minute on this because when it comes to prophecy, I still think Peter's advice is what we forget sometimes. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So don't be more intent on the prophecy experts than you are on the Bible prophecy itself. We test everything against the word of God. Don't buy it because it's trending now. Everybody's talking about this. Putin is Gog. I told you on Sunday. Is that a possibility? Sure. Can we confirm it today? Nope. We got to wait and see on that one. Is the vaccination the mark of the beast? No, no, no. Is it lining us up for the mark of the beast? Absolutely. You know, mandates and government overreach and this kind of thing, is this the pattern that's going to, that is, you know, preparing the world for what's coming? No question about it. But let's be biblically sound. Believe it because it's in the Bible and you have studied it yourself, not because some popular teacher tells you about it. By the way, why do schisms, speaking of schisms, why do they happen in the church? 2,000 years. And maybe you have non-Christian friends who say, you guys can't even get along. All your denominations and all your divisions and all your schisms, and they're right. We got to own that. Why do they happen? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18 tells us very clearly, and we're talking about Corinth, so they knew schisms. And we know, looking at the Corinthian letters, that, man, this was first century. This has been going on since the very beginning of the church. But Paul says, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions, schisma, exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may also become evident among you. Interesting argument. How do we know those who are approved? How do we know, do we know what is approved? You stick to the scriptures. Biblical literacy is absolutely key to unity. How does a church stay unified and not result in multiple schisms? Sound biblical teaching. The word of God. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 tells us, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's how we remain as a church fellowship undivided. That, by the way, and one more thing which we'll come back to. Verse 28, schisms arise in the crowd. They're discussing, they're debating, and they're getting prophecy wrong. In verse 28, then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching Temple's teaching and saying, you both know me and you know where I am from. Kradzo, K-R-A-D-Z-O. Kradzo. That's what Jesus was doing. He does it twice in this chapter. Two times Jesus is going to cry the cry of a raven. Kradzo. It sounds like it. Kradzo. 
as it flies by and you're like, get out of my face. Cronzo! The cry of a raven. Jesus says it twice in this chapter. John always uses this verb, crazo, to describe a loud public pronouncement. Jesus isn't talking under his breath. Jesus isn't even talking at teaching level. He is crying out in the streets. Wait a minute. If you know your Bible, something's wrong here. Jesus cried out, crazo. It's obvious that it was loud and raucous. But Isaiah 42, verse 2, prophetic word says, he will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. Jesus cried out, Kronzo! And prophecy says he won't. So you could take that verse and immediately go, oh, see, he's not the Messiah. And you'd be doing the same thing that the Jewish people were doing in verse 27 taking it out of context without understanding. Isaiah, when he says he will not cry out or raise his voice, is talking about the character and the intention of the Messiah. That Messiah the servant would not cry out to defend himself. That's the context of Isaiah 42. He will not cry out. He's not going to defend himself. Jesus doesn't defend himself for the sake of himself. Verse 28, he says, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Literally, he, God, truly sent me, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Listen, Jesus cries out on behalf of the Father. He cries out on behalf of their salvation. And listen, when he says, you both know me and know where I am from. He is not talking about his Bethlehem birth or his upbringing in Nazareth. He's talking Bible. You know me and you know where I am from. If you know your word, if you know the Hebrew scriptures, then you know me is what he's saying. You claim to know your Bibles, then you know me. Because in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, also Psalm chapter 40, verse 6, it's quoted. When he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and burnt offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And I believe what Jesus is doing is he replies to their, you know, figuring out and arguing and debating, is this him, is this not him? He hears this, he knows what they're talking about, and he cries out to set them straight, to press them as to what the Scripture really says about Messiah. Because they're, they're quoting this, this trendy idea that no one knows where Christ is going to be from. He's just going to show up. Jesus goes, no, 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 you know Messiah. You know me, you know where I'm from. Their problem is that they don't know God. Now, this is a huge statement on the part of Jesus in Jerusalem to the Jewish people who above all people on earth knew who the real God was or should have. They're the only ones 
to whom the real God, Yahweh, came and led through the wilderness and taught them and gave them the law and, and brought them back even out of captivity. They know, what do you mean we don't know him? How dare you say that? It's not like the prophets of Baal or the Asherah followers. No, we know, we know Yahweh. Jesus says, no, no, you don't. D.A. Carson says the implication is that those who recognize who he is really do know God. And those who cannot discern who Jesus is cannot possibly know God. Because the two are so intimately linked. From, how do they know? Because they, they're supposed to know God. And if they really do know God, they know Jesus. Because he has sent me. Jesus says. The people are listening to this, stunned by it. Jesus said back in Matthew 11, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone, get this, to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I thought no one could come to the Son unless the Father drew him. And now Jesus says, no one can know the Father unless the Son shows him. Well, which is it? It's both. You know God because of Jesus. You know Jesus because of God. And you can't separate out the two. Well, verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now that cracks me up. What does that mean? They wanted to get him, but then someone said, hey, wait, it's not his hour, so we can't yet. Okay, we'll wait. John doesn't explain how they couldn't seize him. They wanted to make a citizen's arrest right there, but they couldn't do it. John just tells us the reason they couldn't do it was it wasn't his hour. But something happened there, and I don't know if, if the crowd swelled and, and Jesus slipped out for a minute, or if, if there was just kind of a standoff, but then they backed down. I'm not sure what happened. All I know is it wasn't his hour, and so the Lord did not. When the Messiah comes, he will not perform more, perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? Schisms. Some would seize. Some would believe. And we're right back to asking the question, how can such a man of peace as Jesus cause such division? And the answer is because True peace only comes by way of redemption. True peace only comes of receiving Jesus. Redemption is either received or it's rejected. And we're already seeing in the division of the crowds here in chapter 7, there are those who are receiving him or want to. Their hearts are open at least to receiving him as the potential Messiah. But there are others who are outright rejecting him. And those two cannot see eye to eye. Schism. And that's what happens. By the way, here's the second popular notion of Messiah. Remember the first one back in verse 27. The second one is right here in verse 31. When the Messiah comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? Supernatural verification. Supernatural, so sudden revelation. They were looking for sudden revelation and they were looking for supernatural verification. The problem is, as we talked about last week, it's never enough. 
When you're banking on something supernatural to happen and it happens, you just want to see more. Because signs and wonders don't bring faith. They can encourage the faithful. They can get your attention. For all of you sitting in here, if you haven't seen a miracle, you haven't seen the supernatural, you've seen good things, you've seen Jesus at work, you, you realize his goodness and his blessings, but you haven't seen someone raised from the dead. Maybe you haven't seen someone have hands laid on them and suddenly they walk. Miracles have happened to some of you who are sitting here and others of you who are sitting here would go, I don't know if I've seen something supernatural or not. That's okay. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. The greater blessing is because you come to trust him and you believe in him and you listen to his spirit speaking within you. But what's interesting about Jesus is that while faith based in signs typically is more shallow, He's willing to allow for miraculous signs. Hey, they're better than nothing. <laughs> if that's what it takes. Was it Sunday we talked about this or last Wednesday? I think it was last Wednesday. That it's going to take, no, it was Sunday. Some people are going to have to see or realize the resurrection has happened before they believe like Jesus' brothers. Some are going to have to go into the tribulation and they're going to have to see the signs and wonders taking place. God supernaturally interacting with this world in an undeniable way and then they will come to faith. It's not what God prefers, but it's what he will do and in the tribulation period, he pulls out all the stops to try to see a lot of signs and wonders in Muslim countries right now. I can't verify it. I've heard about many things though. We don't see so much in the way of signs and wonders in America, but then I, I always go back to the parable of Jesus in Luke 16 where he says, they have Moses and the prophets. We have the word of God. Better that we would be in the word. And, and again, please don't, I, I hope you don't misunderstand me. I am not opposed to miraculous healing. <laughs> Why would I be when that's what Jesus did? And that's what he does and we are to pray for healing. I, I, so just stay with me that Jesus does allow for signs to get people's attention. And so this idea of supernatural verification, that's biblical. The prophets did say when Messiah came, he would do supernatural things. He would give sight to the blind. He would cause the deaf to hear. He would make the lame to walk. These are, these are prophetic indicators of Messiah. So it's legitimate. Sudden revelation, he's going to come. It's going to be surprising. And it was. Supernatural verification. Listen, a couple of months after this, Jesus is going to be back in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. John chapter 10. And at that time, he says in verse 37, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. So look at what I'm doing. Remember what he told John the Baptist. The, the blind see, the deaf can hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised. So yeah, yeah, there are signs that Follow after what Jesus, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Man, if that's what it takes, at least pay attention to what's going on here as he's healing people and feeding people and walking on the sea. If it takes the signs, so be it. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. All right, the, cloud, the crowd is getting negative. Now's the time. 
Send the officers, send the temple guard. The temple guard were Levites who served in the temple service and it was their job to keep an eye on religious things. Religious, or verse 33, Jesus said, therefore, so the reason he says this is because they're sending the guard to seize him. For a little while longer I'm with you and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me and where I am you cannot come. Now, he is obviously talking about heaven and judgment. Heaven for him, where I'm going, you, you will seek me and you won't find me. Why? I'm going to be home. I'm going to be with the Father. I'll be back in heaven. But it's also judgment for those who would try to seize and ultimately kill him. So he's pronouncing both here. I love that Jesus, man, he just sees right through it. He sees right through. They're sending the temple. We got to watch this movie. So we watch the movie. Great movie. PG-13, it's Cold War, mid-50s. And, and there's this Russian spy who is captured at the very beginning of it. And the Russian spy is standing there and they're charging him with treason against the country. And they're going to send him to the electric chair. And Tom Hanks says, doesn't this worry you? And the spy says, would it help? <laughs> what a great comment. Aren't you concerned? Would it help? He says it like three times in the movie, and it's just classic. He's just this, this little, and he's got this British accent, and he says, would it help? So I don't even know why I'm talking about that. Oh, so Jesus. So, Jesus, I mean, this is, this is like Jesus' attitude. They're sending the temple guard to seize and arrest him, and he's teaching. And I love that Jesus, man, his eyes they see right through the arrest. And I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about in six months from here. His eyes look right through the arrest that he knows is coming. His eyes look right through the punishing trials he knows are coming. And his eyes look right through the cross, Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Two aspects of that joy Number one, the joy set before him is you. And we've talked about that. It is saving you. He looks through the cross and sees you and sees me. And to Jesus, that is great joy. C.S. Lewis once said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Amen? Amen? Which is why we should be looking forward to this thing. Verse 35, therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, again, I, I'm with you and I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion. Any Jews really outside of Judea, living outside of Judea, the dispersion. And it refers all the way back to 722 BC when northern Israel was dispersed, destroyed, by Assyria. And then 586 B.C., when the Jews in Judea were taken into Babylonian captivity. If you know your Bible, you know it was a small group that actually came back to the land and resettled and stayed and began to repopulate Judea. Many stayed in Babylon. Many stayed in the east. Others stayed in Assyrian countries or where they were sent, spread out all over. Many, many never made it back to Jerusalem at all, the diaspora. And so these Jerusalem Jews are saying, is he going to go out to the dispersion, the diaspora? 
out in the Greek world. Um, then they say, is he going to teach the Greeks? The Greeks who reeks? <laughs> you know, it's a Jewish mentality. Where's he going to go that we can't find him? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? This house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. See, to these crowds, and he's talking really to the unbelievers among them, to those who would seize him, to those who are rejecting him, he says to them, where I'm going, you can't come. But to the 12 that night, really the 11 at this point, he says to them, you know the way where I am going. Wow. Do do you know the way where he is going? Do, Do you know the way to heaven? See, what's for life, no one comes to the Father but through me. And if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And he's declaring the faith. He's pouring faith truly into his disciples in that moment. Faith that the people on the street six months earlier weren't ready for. Wouldn't accept. Would not receive. Well, back in chapter 7, they wonder if he's going out to Judea, to the diaspora again, or to the Greeks. You know what's interesting? The Greeks will come to him. Again, six months later, this is now John chapter 12, verse 20. There were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, up until now, my hour has not yet come. My time is not yet. And here, the hour has come. It's time. Why? Dies, it bears much fruit. This is amazing. The Greeks want to see you, Jesus. And Jesus says, it's time. You know what time it was? It's the times of the Gentiles. And that's why when the Greeks came to Jesus, he recognized his hour was up. His rejection would usher in the times of the Gentiles. The Gentile world was now sitting up and taking notice and wanting to come to Jesus. And he knew that's the start of the church. Yes, they were Jews in Jerusalem when it first founded. But the church exploded in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and and others, Mark among them, as it went out to the Greeks. To the Jew first, Jesus came, but also to the Greek and his rejection ushered in the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21, 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's still trampled underfoot. Jewish people have a hold on it once again. Praise God, that's his doing. But the Gentiles are still doing their trampling. It still goes on. Verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great... If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You got to read it that way because that's how Jesus said it. He didn't say, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He shouts this in the streets. It echoes through Jerusalem. And he shouts this from the top of his lungs. And what he says is rivers, rivers, rivers of living water are going to flow. Come to me if you're thirsty. I got rivers for you. The word rivers, interesting, it's potomoi or potomoi. It's like Potomac. Just think Potomac, the Potomac River. The Potomac doesn't come from this word, but that's the Greek word potomoi. And it means streams, rivers, or torrents. In fact, the word flow there is not flow, it's gush. Gushing torrents is what Jesus is offering, listen to me, to anyone who wants it. To anyone who wants it. Gushing torrents. Why isn't God more evident in my life? I mean, do does, does some of you feel like you got more of a trickle than a torrent? You know, sometimes I feel like I, I got a little splash on me. And Jesus offers gushing torrents. Obviously, eight. Some will argue for day seven. The reason I think it's day eight is because on the first and the eighth day were special Sabbath uh, recognitions. The first day of the feast always began a, a special Shabbat. And then the feast went for seven days. And then on the eighth day, they had another special Shabbat. Whether it was on the Sabbath day or not, they had a special Shabbat on day eight. And I think that's what day we're talking about. This is the great day, the final day, the, the closing day of the feast. Listen to this. I'll just read it to you. What feast we're talking about? Sukkot. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33. And I'm amazed. Did you realize we were studying in Leviticus one year ago? It wasn't that long. When we were in this place, Leviticus 23, 33, where the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, on the 15th of this seventh month, this is taste to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work that eighth day Everybody assembled. And while there was festivities and celebration and partying going on literally all week long, on the first day, on the eighth day, you assemble. And on that eighth day, oh, this is a special, special day. These are the appointed times of the Lord, he says. And down in verse 39, on exactly the 15th day, the eighth day, on the first day, you shall take for yourself the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And they would bring in these palm branches every morning. I told you this a year ago. Half of the priests went out to the Mount of Olives and gathered up all the branches they could. Brought them. Just this glorious scene of covering. God is our covering. They do this with the branches. And it goes on and says, you shall rejoice before the Lord. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Again, Tishri. You shall live in booths, sukkahs, for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that your generations will know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So there it is. The, the festival is laid in in Leviticus 23. Among the other seven festivals of the year, it's laid out Sukkot. 
Feast of booths. It means tent, pavilion, tabernacle, lean-to, hut. And this is what Jews even do today. All over Israel, on Tishri the 15th, it begins the week-long celebration of Sukkot. It is a, I've called it Camp Kingdom because it is a massive nationwide camp out. It's really global because Jews everywhere will build a lean-to. If a Jewish person lived in Oak Harbor, they'd go out in the backyard, build a little lean-to, and they'd go out and they'd have all their meals out there. The kids would probably sleep out there during the week. There was Shabbat rest on the first day and then a special Shabbat rest on the eighth day. And what's it for? Three things. Sukkot looks back. It looks back to God's provision in the wilderness. Secondly, it looks presently, every year it looked presently at his provision for the harvest because this was harvest time and they would bring the first fruits of the harvest and they would offer those during Sukkot. So looking back to provision in the wilderness, looking right now to his provision through the year and the harvest and then looking forward to his provision in the kingdom. Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of Sukkot. And it's speaking about the kingdom, which is why I call it Camp Kingdom, because this one, more than any other feast, speaks of the kingdom. On Sunday, I said it's the most joyful of all the Jewish feasts. This is the party feast. This is a week-long just celebration. It's enjoying the fruits of their labors. It's, it's celebrating to the Lord. Sukkot, you could say, because it's past, present, and future. You could say it's past tense, present tense, and future tense. Tense. Because they're sukkahs, past tabernacles, present. Okay. Past tense, present tense, future tense. Come on. You could say past tense, intense, future tense, if that helps. Okay. You heard about the guy who went to his psychiatrist? Said, Amen. He is past tense, present tense, future tense. And I mean that both ways, even with the pun, because John taps into this saying, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is intense. <laughs> he is past tense, present tense, future tense. 2,000 years ago, he was past tense in that he came and tabernacled among us. Right now, he is present tense in that he tabernacles in you and in me, he makes his dwelling. And he's future tense and that he will rule and reign in the glorious kingdom at that time. It's just awesome. Now, every morning of these seven days, you may remember this, they had a, a, a posse of priests. Half would go up to the Mount of Olives to get those leaves and foliage. The other half would gather and would march down the southern steps. Directly down, it's a downhill slope. If you've ever walked it, you know it's quite a slope. Not just down the steps, but from the steps all the way down to the city of David, they would march carrying a golden pitcher. They continued down there, that steep hill. They arrived at the pool of Siloam in the city of David and they would fill that pitcher up from the Gihon Spring. Then they would all turn around and they march right back up the hill and up the southern steps into the temple courts, all the while singing the Hallel Psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Psalms of praise and glory and all the people are just, they're just having a great time. And they're carrying this golden pitcher of water as they march up singing the songs. And then they come into the temple and they come to the west side of the altar and there's a silver cup or, or funnel there and they would pour the water in. God watering the people in the wilderness, water from the rock. They also did it in, in praise and thanks to God who brought the rains 
to Israel through the year. The early rains and the latter rains were brought to bring the harvest early and late, without which Israel cannot survive. When it's a drought year or drought times in Israel, it, it gets deadly. They need the rain desperately. And so they would praise God for the Gihon Spring and they would just pretend to dip it, but they wouldn't. With a great show, no water in the pitcher. They'd walk it back up singing the Hallel songs. They would get up to that silver chalice. They would go to pour. Nothing would come out. But as they poured, they recited an ancient prophecy. Isaiah 44, verse 3, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Isaiah's prophecy of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was prayed and even as they pretended to pour the water, it was prayed as a prayer for Messiah to come. Hadn't Jesus already said to the Samaritan woman, John 4, 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of Jacob's well, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. The water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He says this to the Samaritan woman. Now in Jerusalem, he says it to all the Jews gathering there. He doesn't just say it. Silence. Jesus busts out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers, streams, torrents of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, verse 39, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Rabbis typically sat. Honestly, it's what gave me the idea to sit down when I teach, that and because I move around way too much. But I, I, when I heard that, I'm like, oh, cool, because we want to be, I want to be about teaching the word, so I'll, I'll sit down. Rabbis would sit down. They would usually quote a first Genesis today. If a rabbi sat down and, for example, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They'd all say, oh, it's Psalm 22. That's why Jesus said that on the cross. We'll come back to that in a future study. Lord willing. Jesus would normally sit down. We see this over and over in the Galilee, even in Jerusalem. He sat down and his disciples gathered around him and he taught them. This time, notice, not only does he cry out, he stood. Jesus stands up and cries out so that the whole crowd can hear him. Jesus basically takes the invitation of, of Isaiah and he owns it himself. What invitation? Isaiah 55, verse 1. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Jesus out for all who are thirsty. He offers the Holy Spirit of the living God to Says the Lord will continually, note this, continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give you strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That's what Jesus is offering. That's what God promised and prophesied. Another prophecy, and by the way, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But I love that Isaiah said, the Lord will continually guide you, satisfy your desire in scorched places. When Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, Literally translated, 
The Greek language is very clear. He says, let him keep coming to me and keep drinking. It's not come and I'll satisfy you today. It's not come and I'll pour into your container for today and tomorrow. It's I will continually satisfy you. Keep coming, keep coming, keep drinking. Rivers, streams, torrents of living water never cease to flow. Oh, but man, I feel like, again, it's a trickle right now. Jesus would say to you tonight, keep coming. Keep coming, keep drinking, don't stop. Don't think that you can have one sip and be satisfied. And if you're in a place where you're like, I just feel like other people have more Holy Spirit than me. First of all, shame on you, stop comparing yourself to others. Jesus loves you for you. But secondly, if you feel dry, keep coming. If you feel like you lack the living water, the, the streams and torrents and rivers, then you come to him. Luke 11, Jesus says, let him ask. Just keep asking me. Verse 38, from his innermost being. From his innermost being will, will flow rivers of water. That's where it comes from. Jesus residing in us by his spirit will flow out of us. That should tell us something, my friends. It's not just taking in, it's giving out. Rivers of living water. From where? From my innermost being. Who for? To the world around us that is dying of a dire thirst. And it keeps coming back to that. I know over and over, a disciple is not just one who takes in. A disciple is one who gives out. Who is poured into and pours out of. Jeremiah 17, 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. That is not something we rejoice in. That is a tragedy. The fount of living water, God is pouring into us. Are we pouring out? I love that Paul says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, tooth or something. We have this, this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power Maybe of God and not of us. What does that mean? It means we're pouring it out. It means as the Spirit fills us, so we are overflowing and we are giving out and we are returning to. We poured out, pour out from what has been poured in. I got to take just, just a second and tell you this. Got a letter today from a sister. Actually, she had been here before in the past and she's moved to a different state and she wrote this letter back and she'd been talking to a friend of hers in Oak Harbor and the friend of hers in Oak Harbor was telling her about all these trailer parks and what a absolute disaster and sin-filled situation it is and it's brutal and she mentioned a guy who has children by multiple women in the same trailer park and it's just this letter and I will confess to you I hate letters like this because far, part of the letter was, was kind of saying where's the church? What's the church doing? <laughs> Which I love when people say that. By the way if you ever say that to me what's the church doing about this? I'll say what are you doing? Because you're the church. I'm the church too. What am I doing? I can give you some answers for that. What are you doing? What are we doing? But it's a fair question. We talked about it at staff a little bit this morning. And at first, I think all of us were kind of like, what are we doing? What are you doing? You know? But then you stop and begin to process and begin to think, there's a lot of pain right in Oak Harbor. 
right in Anacortes, straight down in Coopville and on the south end of the island and over on Fidalgo and, and trailer park and open my Bible? Start, start door knocking? Do you know how effective door knocking is in Northwest Washington? On say no. In fact, well, I won't get into Mormonism. That's a different thing. What are we doing? And I think, I don't know what to do. So what do we do? What do we do for these people who we don't even know? We have no connection to them. What am I supposed to show up and just say, hey, anyone who's thirsty, come on over. We can give you something to drink. I mean, that would just be weird, right? Well, that's what Jesus did in Jerusalem. What are you saying, Rick? Here's my point. I don't know what to do for these people. Breaks my heart to even think about the fact that while I'm comfortable in my bed tonight, someone's in a trailer park and they're having some serious issues. So what do we do? We ask the Lord, is there something we're supposed to do here? And secondly, and I'm putting this all out to you right now, we ask each other, does anyone know someone in, this, in these trailer parks? Does anyone have a connection we talk about Harvin and Cleofe who, who serve in the Philippines, Living Way uh, Gospel Church. And they have a ministry to the barrios that is stunning. Every week they're in the barrios and they're playing with the kids and they're bringing food and they're holding Bible studies in the barrios. And these are like shanty. This is a shanty town built over water as you walk through it. it, it it's, it's very impoverished. And the New Bridge Fellowship, do we have an inroad to some of these places? Do we have someone in the fellowship? Maybe you yourself live in one of the trailers. That, that's an opportunity for us to bring the gospel there. So I'm not following up because I feel guilty from a letter. But I am following up because I think God is he's, he's saying something here. And it's, it's our responsibility not to just ignore, but to at least say, Lord, what would you have us do? And I am way off note. That's what we're doing right now. Guess what? I'm not going to cancel Bible study so that we can go do a gospel mission in a trailer park. We should do both. We need the Word. We need to be in the Word. We will not stop the teaching of the Word at the Bridge Fellowship. But what's it motivating us to do? And as God is pouring His Spirit into us, rivers and streams, and even if you just have a trickle, man, can you... <laughs> Can you let that trickle on someone else? What does he want us to do? That, that's the question I'm asking. I'm asking you to pray with me, to join me in this. Lord, what do you have for us? In addition to, beyond the study of your word, which is so vital and so important, what do you have for us? We pour out from what's been poured in. By the way, this is the other way followers of Christ avoid schisms and remain undivided as a church. There's the word and we hold fast to the word of God, but we desperately need his spirit. It's truly of the Lord. We, we might go off emotionally and in our own thoughts, but Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, verse one, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, listen to this, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what our part in that is? To be diligent. We are to be diligent about the Spirit. Diligently seeking to preserve 
that which only he can give. But he's given it. Will we preserve this? Verse 42, or sorry, verse 40. Man, I, I could sit in verses 37 and 38 the rest of the night and on into tomorrow. We're saying this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Listen to them debate these things. And they're all to some degree correct, except for the Galilee statement, but I'll get to that in just a sec. Doesn't he come from Bethlehem? Uh-huh. Well, is he the prophet? Uh-huh. But well, surely he's the Christ? Uh-huh. <laughs> but they're all arguing about it. It's schism. Sudden revelation without speculation was their wrong interpretation. Uh, supernatural verification was what so many were still looking for. But the third popular trend line, Davidic succession, that he must be born of the lineage of David in the town of David, that is Bethlehem, birthplace of David, where David was discovered by Samuel as a shepherd in the hills of Bethlehem. And anoint things that he kind of inserts here, because think about it, by the time John's readers got their hands on this scroll. The ancestry and the birthplace of Jesus were well known. So they'd be reading along and they'd, see, they'd say, has it not said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem? That's right. That's right. That's where Jesus is from. You know what's really interesting to me? That after the fall of Jerusalem, when the temple burned to the ground, all of the records of genealogies of the Jewish people were kept in the temple. They were destroyed. They were all lost. For a Jewish person to trace their genealogy is very difficult to do past A.D. 70 because all of those genealogical lines were, were lost and destroyed. But by the time A.D. 70 took place, the genealogy of Jesus Christ was already recorded and established in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. So whereas every other genealogy was lost, the genealogy of Jesus was preserved. Isn't that amazing? All three prophetic indicators here of Messiah were in one way over every one of them, and they're just missing him because they're arguing rather than saying, wait, yes, he is to come from Bethlehem, and he will come in a surprising way. It's both. That's going to happen. Uh, they would say, yes, there will be supernatural verification. Of course there will be. The, the Bible says so, but it's going to be in context with all these other things. Take it together. Verse 43, so a division, a schism, schisma, occurred in the crowd because of him. Verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. What about the temple officers? Verse 4, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. <laughs> this cracks me up. These guys, this is the temple guard. They're sent out marching to go seize Jesus. And when they come back, you can just see them. Can you imagine them making their way back to the chief priest? Did you hear what he said about the water? Dude, that guy's so awesome. He's amazing. They couldn't arrest him. They were amazed. Now we find out they began to listen to him and they went to capture him, but they were captivated by him. They just couldn't get enough. Verse 47. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? 
No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Um, there's one. He met Jesus at night a little while ago, and he's been doing his research and reading. Informed them now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. So, yeah, no one's justified by the law. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who, he who came to him before being one of them, said to them, our law, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? See, the, Judea, the people in Jerusalem looked down on the Galileans. They were a bunch of hicks, backwater folk, country bumpkins, Oh, you're one of the, you're, you're from the country? And then they say to him, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And my friends, these teachers of the law could not be more wrong. They didn't know their own Bible. No prophet comes out of Galilee, really. Micah was from Moresheth in the Galilee. Micah chapter one, verse one. Jonah was from Gath. Heifer in 2 Kings 14, 35, it tells us Gath Heifer, that's five miles from Nazareth in the Galilee. Nahum was an Elkishite. This one's interesting. Nahum, we call him, Nahum. Nahum chapter one, verse one, calls him Nahum the Elkishite from the town of Elkosh. Elkosh was an ancient village on Lake Kinneret in the Galilee and some think that that's where the prophet Nahum originally hailed from when it was called Elkosh. The point is, and by the way, Elijah may have been from the Galilee. We're not sure, but there are some indications. Perhaps that's where he was from. It says Gilead, but Gilead stretches up to the Galilee. Hosea was probably from the Galilee. That out. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 also tells us this. If, if, if that's not enough, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You've got schisms in the crowd. You've got schismatic leaders who are hateful toward one of their own Nicodemus and denigrating to the very people that they're supposed to lead. That's bad leadership. It is always bad leadership to sit up here in your ivory tower and command your troops to go into the Ukraine. I mean, to... <laughs> it's bad leadership to lord it over people. That's not Jesus' way. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to serve, not to be served. But these leaders, these guys, they're not leaders, they're losers. And John sees an angry, resentful bunch here. Put it like that. Remember that the verse headings in, and the, the verse numbers are not inspired. They came around a lot later. So that's not the basis. You know, They're helpful to find stuff. We don't just have to say, in the beginning, God, and you all go, oh, Genesis, you know. So they're helpful, but this verse, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the mount 
of olives. They went to their homes. Jesus didn't have a home. He went to the Mount of Olives. Now, occasionally he would go over the Mount of Olives down to Bethany and he would stay with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He'd stay with his friends there. Much of the time, Jesus just went, olive trees spread out all along it. Jesus often stayed there. We know he prayed there. He was betrayed there. But he also ascended from there and the Bible tells us he will return there, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. Last thing, do you know what's going to run through that large valley? A river. A river, a massive river. Ezekiel 47 paints the picture for us. A river that begins under the threshold of the temple. It begins as a trickle. Recognizes this massive river splits supernaturally and half of it, 20 miles, the way it's described from one place to another, 20 miles wide. 20, and this is huge. This massive river gushing in streamlets and rivers and torrents all going down to bring life into the Dead Sea. That's what the Spirit does. He brings life into the Dead Sea, into the hard heart, into those who are arid and dry. This massive rushing river in the kingdom will actually be there, a real deal, supernaturally flowing both directions, bringing with it thriving life. But Jesus again says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers, streams, torrents of living water. Father, what a powerful moment with Jesus here. Rushing, rushing river. And Father, I just want to pray for our fellowship right now because we all are in different places. Prayerfully, hopefully, Father, we're all facing you. But we're all on a different part of the journey of the maturity of the learning of the growing. And there are times, Father, where the most mature among us have a cracked dry throat and need to come back to, to, to pursue this living water that you promised, to keep drinking. And there are some times where the least mature among us, Father, are just overwhelmed with the flow. Father, I just pray that you would refresh our fellowship but Lord, I'm going to ask right now that you would do it for the purpose of pouring out to the lost and the broken and the hurting and the needy who fill our towns. Father, may we never close the church doors to the thrill, but that we could be used powerfully by you to refresh those who are lost. And I pray this in Jesus' name.